Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So in this season's theme, where I'm getting to talk to some of my favorite authors and thinkers, one of the topics that's come up quite a bit is parenting. And I'm finding myself especially fascinated lately with the idea of old-fashioned parenting versus modern parenting and the pros and cons of each. So when I was researching uh, the book, of, or excuse me, the chapter about children in my latest book that is not out yet, but it will be um, next year, I came across this book, The Gift of Failure by Jessica Leahy, and I was instantly intrigued because this is a theme that I have talked about um, just in my own circles locally, but also online here and there over the last couple of years. And I thought that the research and information she had to share on that was amazing. So I am so excited to have Jessica Leahy herself here on the podcast today to talk about these topics and how failure can be a gift for us and our children. So welcome on board, Jessica. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah. So let's just, we'll just dive right in. Um, give me a little bit of background as far as like why you wanted to write this book, why this topic was compelling to you. So um, I was a teacher for 20 years um, in every grade from six to 12th. But when I was writing, the, when I proposed the gift of failure, when I wrote an article that sort of led to the publication of the book, I was teaching middle school. And, you know, middle school is this amazing time that really until just recently was sort of kids last great opportunity to sort of screw around, make mistakes, you know, learn from their mistakes, that kind of thing. And yet at the same time, I was seeing this encroaching sort of um, high school, what middle school is now is sort of like pre-high school and no, 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 you can't make any mistakes there. And it's, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And at the same time, a lot of, um, I like to joke that middle school, middle school in general is a setup that kids do not have the um, executive function, the sort of higher brain skills required to handle everything we throw at them in middle school. So really, the best middle school teachers, middle the teachers who seem to enjoy middle school the most, understand that what our job very much, most of our job really, you know, there's all that teaching stuff. But on top of that, there's, you know, watching these kids screw up all day long over and over and over again, and then finding the right learning moments. You can't just, you know, you can't take them to task every single time they do anything wrong. You have to find the right moments. And increasingly what was happening was either consequences were being taken away by the parents or, you know, there was the, the whole snowplow thing, like any complications were sort of plowed out of their way ahead of time. And what that leads to is a really bad, really negative situation where I was feeling like I was in an adversarial relationship with the parents. And all of the research on learning, all of the research on education uh, policy shows that the better the relate the homeschool relationship, the more kids learn. So, you know, I was really mad at the parents. And at the same time, I was also realizing that I was doing the same thing to my own kids. Um, at the mm -hmm. time, my kids were nine and 15, nine and 14. And I had, um, you know, over parented, overly directive parented uh, my kids into a relative state of helplessness. And so at that point, you know, things got real because <laughs> then sure. I'm thinking, you know, how do I help my students? And at the same time, how do I um, rectify the problems in my own parenting, especially as I was raised by parents who really gave me a lot of leeway and, and gave me a lot of opportunities to learn from my own mistakes, which was great. Yes. Um, so a couple of things I, I, that came to mind as you were talking, just first off, the difference in, in your parents versus style versus your style, which I feel like is very, very common um, in our culture, is we've seen the, the parenting styles shift. 
one question that I always ask around any topic um, is, how did we get here? And so would you yeah. be able to shed some light on, you know, I think maybe 150 years ago, parenting looked very different mm -hmm. and why it changed and how it changed and kind of how we got to this point where helicopter parenting or overparenting is the norm. So there's an entire chapter on that in The Gift yes. of Failure, but condensed down, essentially, we're having kids older. We're having kids after more education. We're using the tools of our, um, you know, the the workplace and tools of, you know, higher education, the spreadsheets, all that kind of thing to kind of try to manage all of the varying, you know, details of how we raise a kid and to try to gain more control, you know, and then there's the the history behind it, which is essentially that, you know, we've gone through waxing and waning, you know, childhood, sorry, parenting didn't used to be called parenting. Um, it was called child rearing where the child was centered, you know, sort of, and, and as opposed to the parent being centered. And um, as we've gotten, you know, to a place where we're having fewer kids, we're having them older, where, you know, the stakes seem to be higher. The media is telling us constantly that, oh my gosh, it's so hard to get in college. Now your kids are never going to get into college. And by the way, someone is ready to kidnap them around the next corner. And by the way, it's an incredibly dangerous time to be a kid, which is by the way, not true. It's one of the safest times in our, in our country's history to be a kid. Um, violent crime around kids is uh, targeted at kids is, is way down. Um, but there are the, we're in this 24 seven media cycle where we're constantly hyping each other up. And then at the same time, we're also, um, each other's worst enemy. You know, yeah. when we're constantly talking about, you know, all the things boasting essentially around our children and talking on the sides of the soccer field, you know, about all the, the traveling soccer and the cello lessons and the math tutoring and all those things, we tend to ramp each other up and get into this crazy fight or flight and mode. Um, you know, we get our cortisol and our adrenaline going and then um, we wind ourselves up. So, you know, I've written on a lot of aspects of this, you know, the last part I wrote about in the Atlantic in an article called why back to school night made me feel like a bad parent mm. because even I, the person who wrote this book went to back to school night when my youngest was going into, I can't remember what grade and um, was feeling pretty good about what they were doing at home and got to school and everyone else was like, Oh, we've been at math tutoring all afternoon. Haven't even been yeah. home yet. And I'm like, crap, I'm ruining my children's lives. I'm behind. I, 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 we haven't done any college tours yet. You know, it's all that stuff that really crashes down on us and, a lot of that's the media, a lot of that's us, a lot of that is sort of this constant messaging of it's hard, it's impossible, you know, the college thing, all that stuff. So yeah, the stakes feel really high around the kids we have now. Absolutely. And I have felt that same thing with other parents. Like I feel like I do pretty good. Like I'm pretty involved. We homeschool, we have a farm and they're living their best kid life in my opinion. But then when we go out mm -hmm. in the world, it's like the same thing. Like, oh, well, I guess we're not doing that. And we're not doing that. Yeah. And we're not doing this activity. And then you start to second guess. And it's just like this vicious cycle. Well, and it's really hard when you, you know, for example, my kids, um, I have one kid that, you know, did a lot of like, did some sports things and stuff like that. But I have another kid whose interests are and very, very interested in things that really are quite solitary, yeah. um, music theory and composing and, you know, things that really require a lot of alone time. And I totally get that. I mean, I'm a writer. I 
require a ton of alone time. And so, you know, when it comes down to it, if you, if I were to go out there and compare my children, especially my younger child to other children and maybe put their resumes side by side, you know, it looks like my kid has not done anything outside of school by the parameters that we tend to measure for, you know, college applications and, um, you know, the things people are used to seeing, like student council president and that kind of, you know, that sort of stuff. And yet at the same time, my child is a self-taught musician and has reads philosophy and reads, you know, all kinds of cool texts that I wouldn't think a high school kid would want to read, but that's difficult for me to measure. Yes. Whereas, you know, whether it's grades, whether it's, you know, check boxes on a, a college application about all the activities there they've been involved in, that's much easier to measure. So helping your child understand how to advocate for themselves and how to, you know, it's hard enough to, to write those college essays where you feel like you're tooting your own horn. That can be really, really hard. But finding ways to help your kid understand what they bring to the colleges or the world that's more important than, you know, getting that three-star, that three-sport award at the end of their senior year. And nothing, you know, nothing wrong with sports. I have, um, you know, uh, my one, like I said, one of my kids is very involved in sports and my niece is incredibly involved in sports. But for kids that are slightly different, it can be very difficult. And and it's very hard for us as parents. We want to be able to sort of flash the resume and say, look, this is how I've done as a parent. And the problem is, is that that resume, that college application, that sticker, that college sticker on the back of your car, that is not an assessment of our parenting. And in fact, when my oldest kid was looking at colleges, the one thing I said to him was, I will not put a sticker on the back of my car because this choice about where you go to college is so much bigger than my bragging rights. It's got to be your decision yeah. about where you feel you can learn best. Um, so it was a kind of a symbolic way of saying, this isn't about me, this is about you. And that can be really, really hard for a lot of parents. And I totally get that. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I know for me, well, I don't want to jump the gun because I, I have a couple questions before we get to that point, but just letting them, <laughs> sure. letting them fail because it, it is hard on the parent ego sometimes. Like, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. I'm like, it can feel like a, it can feel like I'm so urgent. Like if yes. my kid screws this up, that's it. That's, yeah. you know, even if it's in middle school, sometimes now, even if it's in elementary school, boy, if they screw this up, forget it. It's all over. It's too late. Yeah. Um, it's not true. It's not true. Yeah. But man, I think that it, it's like, even though I know it, here, it's like sometimes in the real world, like we're in 4-H right now and one child maybe isn't practicing their 4-H stuff as much as they should. And so I'm in this like this balancing point right now. Do mm -hmm. I remind him and almost like nag him to practice or do I let him mm -hmm. not practice and experience the effects of, you know, getting to the show and maybe not feeling as prepared and maybe not placing as well? So it's that, you know, it, it, it's always that balancing act, but it's easier said than done, I think. Yeah, that this funny that nagging part. There's sort of two parts of gift of failure. There's the whole like not over parenting and that sort of stuff. But then there's this question of how we try to get kids to do the things that we think that they should do, mm -hmm. whether that's homework, practicing piano, you know, practicing soccer, doing their 4-H stuff. Um, when we impose our expectations, our controls, what are called extrinsic motivators, right? Motivators that come from outside your kid. Um, then whether it's money for grades, whether it's saying, you know, if you win this 4-H category, you'll get a hundred bucks from us or whatever that thing is, that's an extrinsic motivator. But so is things like, you know, checking on the grade portal all the time or 
uh, threatening your kid that if they don't keep a B plus or better than they're grounded or, you know, threatening to take away the electronics if they don't, you know, go do whatever it is you want them to do. All of those things are called extrinsic motivators. And what we know is that doing any of those things does not boost their intrinsic motivation. It does not make them want to do the thing for the sake of the thing itself. It actually undermines their motivation. And it not only undermines their motivation over parenting, being too directive in your parenting, sort of telling them how to do everything and here are all the steps and just do what I tell you to do. That's called directive parenting. Mm -hmm. Actually undermines their ability to learn. Yes. Um, because some of the best teaching tools I have require kids to work some things out by themselves, even when it's really at the very limit of their ability level. The more I direct them, the less likely they are to stick with things that are challenging to them because they sort of aren't really good at being frustrated. And so in the end, not only are we undermining their motivation by trying to, you know, pay them for grades or whatever, um, we're also by being too directive, by being overparent, doing the overparenting stuff, we're actually undermining their ability to learn, which is the exact opposite yeah. of what we want to do. So we've got to knock it off a little bit with the grades, points, scores, trophies, ribbons, yeah. all that sort of stuff, which are great. They can be great. But on the other hand, you know, when those things are not the kid's priority or the achievement itself is not the kid's priority. It can be really difficult to get them motivated to do those things. So what is your best um, advice for boosting that intrinsic motivation? So this is actually advice that comes from Edward DC, who wrote the book on this. Okay. And you can see some of this in Dan Pink's work as well. A lot of his um, work on drive mm -hmm. comes from Edward DC's research. Um, it's three things. We have to give kids more autonomy, which is um, control over the details of the things they're doing and control over the details of their life. Um, that's really, really important. Number two, help them feel more competent and not just confident, because confidence is kind of like this empty optimism. It's easily burst, whereas competence is confidence based on actual um, skills, actual like doing something, getting it wrong figuring out a way to do it, getting it right. That's competence. And you can't take that away. So for example, you know, if I feel like, okay, well, my mom has said, I'm a really, really good reader. I'm the best reader in the class. So I'm going to get an A on this reading thing. That's confidence, mm -hmm. right? But if I have done really well on the homeworks and I feel like I've really sort of built up my reading skills, that's competence. And you can't, that's not as easily deflatable, right? Mm -hmm. So Autonomy, competence, and then the last part that's super important is connection. And this connection piece, when I go and do like professional development in schools with teachers is a really complicated thing. It's about, you know, our interpersonal relationships and about how they relate what they're teaching in the classroom to the world out there. It's about connecting ideas to stuff that the kids can actually do with their lives and, and, and execute on their own. Uh, but for parents, it's, it's super simple and a little bit tough to hear. It's, um, it's loving the kids we have rather than the kids that we wish we had. And it's also not just loving them based on their performance or the outcomes yeah. of their efforts. So like if we're just loving our kids, because they bring home the good grades and the, and then we're sort of cold with them when they don't give us the, the desired outcome that we want. Um, that's called the outcome love. That's uh, love in exchange for performance. And it's really emotionally disturbing for kids. Mm -hmm. So autonomy, help them feel more competent, 
and make sure that we support them no matter what, that we love them and not some imaginary version of them, that we support them and not, you know, some imaginary kid we've concocted in our brains that we really wish we were raising instead of the kid we have. So those are the three really important parts of fostering what's called intrinsic uh, motivation. Okay. Those are really good. I just wrote them down. Those are, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, Okay, so I skipped ahead a little bit, but I wanted to ask just kind of on a basic level, which I know, again, is you guys go get this book, Gift of Failure, because it's all in here. It's really good. <laughs> We're not going to cover everything on a, a short podcast, but can you give the listeners just a rundown of if we're not letting our kids, to let allowing them to fail, what are they missing out on? They're missing out on a lot of things. They're missing out on the ability to, going back to what I just mentioned before, to feel frustrated and be able to cope with it emotionally. Um, the teaching tools I referred to before that are really powerful and really, really helpful in um, getting kids to learn and not just regurgitate memorized information is something called desirable difficulties. Mm -hmm. And desirable difficulties not only help us learn more deeply in the short term, it helps us learn more durably over the long term. And those that comes from from giving kids tasks, giving kids assignments, giving kids problems that are a little bit more difficult for them to sort of deal with, um, that cause them to have to sort of parse instructions or read the instructions a couple of times and sort of manipulate information. Um, it's those challenges that, it, you know, like in a world where homework is good, which isn't always yeah. the case, um, you know, the very best homework is the sort of homework that like gives a little bit of practice at the beginning. Um, let's say we're doing math or whatever a little bit of practice on what we know we know at the beginning to sort of warm up and then bringing uh, disparate concepts together so that we have to sort of learn, put two different things together. And then towards the end of the problem set, a couple of problems that ask the kids to really reach and maybe incorporate, uh, incorporate a couple of different things we learned into one scenario. And it's the kids who can stick with that last form that are going to understand the material most deeply, as I said, in the short term and understand it more durably over the long term, because that causes desirable difficulties, cause our brain to skip over the sort of storing stuff in short term memory and put it, encode it into long term memory. So it's incredibly important and incredibly, it's the reason that when we've learned something the hard way, we don't screw that yes. one up again. We really know that stuff, right? Um, when we've gotten something wrong or misspelled a word and, you know, it was embarrassing to us, we will not get that wrong again because we've encoded that information. So that's part of it. And the learning stuff, like as a teacher, I'm always going to want a kid who has a little bit has a little bit more comfort with frustration because those kids can, you know, skip number two and go to number three and see if they can come back to number two and use what they learned with number three or reread the instructions or have a little bit of patience to not just thrust their arm up in the air and say, oh, Miss Lee, Miss Lee, I need help. I need help. I can't figure it out. Those are the kids that are going to learn the most. And so I'd all, I'd always rather have a kid who can get frustrated and doesn't just fall apart the first second they can't do something right the first time than a kid who's just a super genius, but also falls apart the first moment they feel like they're not perfect or they haven't done something right. Those kids are actually quite difficult mm, to teach. Okay. That makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Redmond Agriculture. If you recall from previous episodes, they're the company that produces my absolute favorite salt for baking and cooking. And they just launched something new that I have been dying to tell you about. 
So for years, you've heard me talk about soil testing. And it's so crucial for us as home gardeners who are trying to produce food to know what's going on at the soil level. Otherwise, it's really easy to get frustrated and not understand why your yields might be where you need them to be, why some plants are struggling, and so on. Now, the problem with soil tests is that they've been pretty cumbersome to do. You have to find a university that does it locally or mail them off to random places online. It just hasn't been a great option until now. So Redmond's just launched a soil test kit that is designed for people like you and me, homesteaders and home gardeners. And what I'm holding here is a bunch of my printout results, and I have been totally nerding out over this. So it's super easy to do. Uh, you get the kit, you send it in in the mail, and within five or six days, you'll have results emailed to you. I discovered things in my test reports that I had no idea. Uh, I'm going to go into all the nitty gritty on a future podcast episode, but um, just for now, I'll tell you a few of the most surprising findings. I discovered my compost pile was low in nitrogen. I discovered my greenhouse was too high in nitrogen, and I discovered why the potting soil that had gave me so much trouble this spring was killing all my plants. So again, I'll go into the details in an up, uh, upcoming episode, but for now, I want you to have access to the soil kit because gardening season is rapidly coming to a close. And if you've had a rough year, like many folks are reporting that they've had, um, now is the time to test your soil and figure out what's up. So if you go over to the prairiehomestead.com slash soil test, you can use the code homestead to save 15% on soil kits or anything else that Redmond has to offer. So I can't wait for you to try this. Um, knowledge is power. And as gardeners, we can use all of the data that we can get. So now back to our episode. Interesting. Um, I'm just thinking of all the times, yeah, when I've learned something more deeply. It's it's been through that that element of frustration. Like I'm not sure if I can do it. Oh, mm -hmm. I did. Look at I did it, <laughs> and it feels so yeah. much different. Well, what's interesting is Michael Thompson, one of my favorite writers about boys. He wrote a book called Homesick and Happy about camp and why camp. You know, you know how kids come home from camp and they always have these stories of these things they figured out by themselves or that I made it myself or whatever. There's actually a couple of books about camp that I love, uh, but Homesick and Happy, in the introduction, he talks about the fact that he does these presentations for parents and he asks parents, adults, to think about the moment they were most proud of themselves when they really accomplished something as a kid or a teenager or whatever and get that really fixed in your mind. And then he gives a pause and then he says, now raise your hand if your parents were there when that happened. And it's not that often because the things that we figure out on our own and really feel like for my kids, I, I know what they are. They've come back to me and they've said, oh my gosh, I didn't even tell you about this thing, but I figured it out on my own. I'm so proud of myself for figuring it out on my own. Those moments are incredibly important, not just, not just for learning, but for our feelings of what what's called self-efficacy mm -hmm. and competence. And so in my second book after Gift of Failure was called The Addiction Inoculation, and it's about preventing substance use in kids. One of the most important preventative things we can give kids in terms of, um, of substance use is a feeling of self-efficacy and a feeling of competence. And yeah. so there's this incredible dovetail because the more a kid feels like they 
have some agency and control over their actions and the, and the repercussions of those actions in the world, the consequences of those actions, the less they feel like they need to escape from reality, the less they feel like they need to go to other substances to feel good about themselves. There's a more of an internal locus of control yes. and pride and competence. And that's really important to preventing substance use in kids. Yeah, I can see that. That That's an interesting connection. Um... Do you feel like with our the way our culture is right now, is it is this fear of failure or this aversion to failure? I'm assuming it's primarily being perpetuated by parents or do kids kind of have that natural fear as well? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, so I think increasingly what we see is this. Um, there's okay. both. <laughs> There's definitely both. Like, in fact, I had to, I wrote an article, a column for the New York Times for three years called the Parent Teacher Conference. And some of the biggest questions I got were, um, oh, no, this has nothing to do with my parenting, but my kid is such a perfectionist. She's such a perfectionist that she is afraid to make any mistake. She's afraid to even try, or she's, she will only go to that first gymnastics class and never go back because she's so, she can't do the round off back handspring right the first time. And that's valid. And, you know, in that article, I, I uh, talk about a couple of books I love, um, when A isn't good enough and, um, the perfection myth. And there's a couple of different ones. There's a book on, um, on helping kids get through that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, I also seek a lot when I'm out talking about gift of failure stuff in schools and in community organizations, parents just panicked that unless they do all that stuff for their kids, their kids will never succeed. And the mm -hmm. problem is, is that is a self-perpetuating cycle of incompetence or what we often talk about is um, this thing called learned yes. helplessness. Uh, in both animals and humans, we know that when we don't give kids young creatures, and there's a great rat experiment around this, actually, when we don't give young creatures, like children, um, control over their environment, the ability for them to feel like they can take an action and it will actually result in positive change for them, um, then they will learn to not take any action. And whether that's, you know, uh, pain stimulation being um, exerted on a rat or a child. And so I think what we can see with kids who have learned that it pays, it either pays for them to be helpless because someone will end up doing it for them. Um, we're seeing this a lot. A lot of people have been taking um, uh, umbrage against spouses who uh, do what's called weaponized incompetence, you know, like they'll kind of pretend that they, oh, but you do it so much better, or I just don't know how to do it, or you always get mad at me when I load the dishwasher wrong, so why even yeah. bother, that kind of thing. That's all learned helplessness. And it, it's really important to understand because the first time I ask someone, I ask someone I really respect about um, why all of a sudden my kid seemed like all these things that they'd learned, suddenly they'd forgotten how to do, and why are they feigning incompetence? And she, she said, she replied in my email to an e my email and said, Jess, that's not feigned incompetence. That's called learned helplessness. And you mm. taught it to them. You sure. taught them to be that way. And I have to say, I, I changed a lot about my parenting after writing Gift of Failure, but I changed a ton about how I teach too, because teachers can be overly directive. Teachers can foster learned helplessness. Teachers can, you know, 
erode kids' uh, abilities to feel frustrated. So, you know, it's, and coaches can do this and other mentors can do this. It's not just a parenting issue. Um, it, and especially if a lot of us are doing this at the same time to yeah. get kids, imagine how much reinforcement they're getting for that helplessness. For sure, yeah, it's coming from all the fronts, potentially, yeah. Yeah. Is there data, I mean, so I think a lot of parents have this um, belief that if we, if we hover and if we protect them from failure and if we do all these things, that it's going to um, put them ahead in the long run, right? Maybe they'll get into a better college. Maybe they'll be more successful mm -hmm. adults. Does the data right. actually show right. that? You know, the data is is actually really mixed. There's a couple of, there are some, it depends on what kind of overparenting okay. you're talking about. So for example, we know the data is really clear that the data are really clear that for parents who are have very controlling of their children, um, you know, watch them on their phones, read their emails, read their texts, um, control their behavior. Those kids lie okay. to their parents way more. They are more dishonest with their parents. And it makes sense. You know, I ask kids about this all the time. They'll even lie about stupid, inconsequential things. And I'll say, well, why do you do that? And they'll say, because we have to have something that's ours, you know, and I'm going to get that through secrecy if I can't get it on my own. And if we think about the role of adolescence, the role of adolescence, the very purpose of adolescence, where adolescents' brains are, um, the drives they have, adolescents are driven towards novelty. Some people are going to say risk, and that's not necessarily true. It's just that a lot of things that are novel do confer some risk. Um, but novelty is important for them to be driven towards novelty, right? Because they need to seek out opportunities to become more competent because the point of adolescence is to get you ready to be able to deal with the big bad world, right? So the less competent we help them feel, the more we sort of um, convey this message that they're, you know, I say in the book that every the big understanding for me was that my kid at nine didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And he was so, so embarrassed about that fact that he kept it a secret. But the reality was, is that I'd been doing it for him for so long. And every time I did it for him, what I was conveying to him was, no, 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 I'll do it because I don't really think you're competent uh. enough to do that. What I was trying to convey to him was, it's faster if I do it, and I just don't like seeing you frustrated. That upsets me. Um, but instead, you know, what he was hearing was, eh, you, you, you probably can't do this yourself, so I'll just do it. So the more we're sort of directing them in that way, the more we're controlling. So we know from that data that it fosters learned helplessness. It fosters, um, you know, dishonesty. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that can happen that we can't really anticipate. I was talking um, with some kids who uh, they were talking about parents monitoring emails and texts. Um, and this girl had been shunned from her little, not really shunned. She had been excluded from a texting group that she'd had with her friends for a long time. And with, you know, just summarily, they dropped her out of it. They didn't tell her why she was devastated, absolutely devastated. She saw this as like a real personal attack, that kind of thing. It turns out once we got talking about it, what the deal was is that the girl had been dropped from the text group because everyone figured out that her mother read their, yeah. her mother reads the texts. So none of those other kids wanted to be monitored in that way. And so they just sort of cut her out. And I'm sure the mother never anticipated that her reading her kids texts was going to you know mess with her ability to keep friends engaged and stuff like that but 
all kinds of weird things can happen when we, uh, anyway. So there's, it depends on how you're talking about overparenting and overparenting can look a ton of different ways. Um, for people who have, uh, people of privilege, you know, if you are a wealthy white parent, um, and, fe and feel perfectly comfortable asserting your power out there in the world, you're going to be more likely to be the kind of parent that's going to go into the school. And by the way, this is a true story. Uh, go up to a teacher and say, you will not discipline my child without asking me first um, mm. in front of the child, by the way. Um, that sort of person has no problem doing that. But for people who don't feel like they have the right or the power to go out in the world or they will be there will be retribution, those people often tend to um, exert more control inside the house and sort of overparent and surveil and do things within the house and control kids, uh, you know, how kids do everything inside the house. So overparenting can look a lot of different ways, which means we have to look about look at its consequences under a whole bunch of different parameters. And it can be really difficult to sort of get a one-to-one -one, uh, causation versus sure. correlation picture of what overparenting causes. Um, we can only say, you know, we there are some really cool studies that I talk about in The Gift of Failure, and especially Wendy Grolnick's research, um, that look at specific elements of overparenting and what that specific element of overparenting is doing to learning or to honesty or to the the parent child okay. bond. Yeah, I, and there are yeah, there are a lot of facets there. It's not just one lump. It's a lot of different moving pieces. It's really hard to control for. I mean, even just uh, the examples I gave, a lot of it comes down to how much support does a kid have? How many um what kind of access do they have to, you know, tutoring and all, you know, there's just so many socioeconomic factors that it can be really difficult to control for in those studies. Um, but people are trying to do it. So for example, like with school portals, um, do they help or do they harm the, the ability to log on 24 seven and see every aspect of your kids, you know, every point score grade. There have been, there's been limited research on whether it helps or harms. Um, and some of that comes down to if you have, Parents who do not feel welcome to participate in the school environment, who don't feel really welcome to go in either because of language barriers or power different differential, um, don't feel welcome to go in. The portal can be a really valuable way to establish some communication with the school and keep tabs on what's going in the school. So in that context, maybe it can be helpful for people who are like, okay, well, I used to just ask my kid how things are going, but now I you know, I keep the portal on my desktop and just hit refresh constantly so I can mm. see every new point and score as it comes in. No. That's not healthy. So yeah, it's a lot of it comes down to these factors that it's, it's hard yes. to control for. I'm sure. Yeah. Makes, it makes total sense. Um, I'm curious as you wrote this book, how did it change your parenting on a practical level? Oh, on a practical level, it did a lot. So the one of the very first things that I got rid of were mm. um, sticker charts. Uh, sticker charts are don't work. Um, the problem is, is that and they we use them constantly, yeah. both in school, actually, and at home. There are exceptions when sticker charts do work, um, for example, with potty training, because the value of being in Big, go big boy, big girl underpants and out of diapers is sort of a value in and of itself, separate from okay. the little sticker you get on the chart. It's a problem I have with, um, there are a lot of class uh, programs that I won't mention by name, but that use, try to evaluate children's behavior, giving them awards, um, extrinsic awards 
Um, and those are highly problematic. I mean, trying to control a kid's behavior using rewards like stickers or stars or tokens or class bucks or whatever, um, what you're teaching a kid in that, especially when it comes to like ethics and morals and things like that, whatever it is you're trying to teach your kid, depending on what your background is, um, what you're saying is this financial reward or this trophy or this whatever is more valuable than, I don't care how you get there. Uh, It's more valuable than the learning. It's the thing, you know, especially if we're giving kids money for grades, what we're saying is, you know, this, this money, this stuff that makes the world go round. um, If you just give me that, a, will give you this money. And I, you know, it, it places the money above the the grade. So that's a problem. Um, So, yeah, I, I got rid of sticker charts. I stopped like holding stuffed animals yeah. and things hostage. You know, yeah. I used to like, here's your favorite stuffed animal going up on the top of the refrigerator until you can get your act together. That kind of stuff tends to not work. What really, really doesn't work, interestingly, are these long-term, what we want. Let me just make this really simple. What we want to do when it comes to um, helping kids see the consequences of their actions is natural consequences or logical consequences. So for example, in our home, the quote, I don't, I don't want to say punishment, the reaction to a kid not doing what they're supposed to do. If our expectations have been really clear that a kid will do their homework to the best of their ability, get their assignments in when they're supposed to get in and communicate with the teacher if they can't, if that fails to happen, I'm not going to take away my kid's phone because or some other a stuffed animal or whatever, because those two things yeah. have nothing to do with each other. The real life natural or logical consequence of a kid not doing their work and not communicating with the teacher is that the kid in, this is my personal way, favorite way to go, and I've done this as a teacher and as a parent, is that the kid has to set up the meeting for the parent and the teacher and the kid to meet so that the kid runs the meeting and the parent and the teacher are there to support the kid in coming up with with maybe systems or techniques or you know strategies that will work to help get around help them learn from their mistakes um and i can tell you right now that a kid would much rather yeah. lose their phone the than have to set up a conference painful. with their teacher and their <laughs> yeah. parent but but think about it like if you screw up at work they don't yeah. take away your phone like you have to have a meeting and talk about how to learn from your mistakes and that kind of stuff. So that's, that was a big change. And I definitely stopped nagging and, you know, I get a ton of, cause nagging yeah. is another extrinsic motivator. It's, you know, you're trying to use guilt or whatever. Um, doesn't, doesn't work. Um, messes really messes with your relationship, um, as well. It's why I tell a story, when I'm on stage a lot about why we um, gave our piano away to the neighbor down the street. Cause my son, after, you know, a brief honeymoon period of taking piano lessons, my son and I fought about it every day. I wanted him to practice. He didn't want to practice. We fought about it every day. And it got to the point where it was really messing with our relationship and our ability to talk about stuff other than why we were mad at each other and stuff like that. So we just got rid of the piano and oddly enough, he, he ended up teaching himself how to play piano many years later and has probably in, uh, in retrospect, probably has learned a lot more and for better reasons, I think, than he would have, but that comes down to our family. Yeah. 
you know, if you're a highly musical family, your priorities may look very different. But those are some of the things that that really changed in our home. Um, the nagging went way down and the extrinsic motivators. I tried yeah. to reduce those as much as possible. It's not impossible to it's not possible to eliminate them. But um, I definitely stopped looking at grades as much. We talked more about what they were learning as opposed to what the score was on the test, all of that kind of stuff. And then that sure. was also reflected in my teaching. I, I might be incorrect, but I think you said that your kids were like nine and 14 when you wrote this book or was is that correct? Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I had, yeah, nine and 14 when I wrote <laughs> the failure and this blows my mind, but uh, the younger one hmm. is about to go off to college on September 1st and the older one now wow. works in New York City wow. as an economist. <laughs> so. Yeah, I know. It's really weird. And especially since, you know, when you write about like these books are out there and then it's like the book may be new to someone if they just read it right now. And so those kids are nine and 14 yeah. as far as they're concerned. But no, they do. They it's funny how that works in real life. <laughs> yeah. Books are forever, but not everything <laughs> in the book stays the same. Um, so was it hard? I mean, I'm assuming right. you had some of these concepts maybe be in place in your family ahead of time before you started the book, but was it hard to have kids that age and mm -hmm. transition into some of these ideas? Like maybe you had parented one way and then you were moving into this new idea. How'd that work? Yeah. Yeah. The biggest place actually to, ver to verge off to, to veer off mm -hmm. to addiction inoculation. Um, the biggest play that was where okay. we saw the biggest change in how I parent because um, the addiction inoculation tells the story of it's essentially the research around what the word preventable means when the experts say that substance use disorder is a preventable disease. Okay. So what oh, substance use disorder is a preventable public health crisis. Okay. Yeah. So what does that actual word mean? And I had to parent my kids very differently after I learned what I learned writing that book. And so the cool thing about kids, especially when they're older, like let's say nine and 14 or however old they were when I wrote the addiction inoculation is I was able to talk to them and say, look, I was doing the best I could with the information I had. I've learned some really important stuff and I've been doing some stuff wrong. I've been doing too much for you. I've been letting you have sips of alcohol at the dinner table. I've been, um, you know, sort of surveilling you or over parent, whatever it is. And I learned something different. I learned how to do better. I learned that the evidence does not support the research does not support the way I was doing it. And now that I know that, some things I'm going to change the way we're doing these things. So let's, let's talk about the changes and what our expectations are and what the consequences will be. If, you know, if you don't uh, meet expectations, that's the cool yeah. thing about changing things up with older kids. And while you're doing that, you're leading by example. I'm saying I made a mistake. I have now learned that I made a mistake and I'm going to now take the new information I have that's better re researched, better, you know, better evidence, whatever, and move forward with that. And if I were to do anything else, like go uh, act in, in opposition to what the research says I should do, then what I'm saying is, yeah, 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 I know what the research is, but it's easier sure. for me if I just do it this way. Um, and, you know, we tend to talk a lot about our my work, my husband's work. My husband is a physician and an ethicist, and we talk a lot about ethics at the dinner table, and we talk about what we're learning. And so my kids know what I know when it comes to, and they've come to my presentations and stuff, when it comes to either the drugs and alcohol stuff or the gift of failure stuff. So if I was to do anything other than operate from that place of best practices, of the best evidence, um, 
what I'm basically saying is, yeah, I love you, but not enough to actually do the, things the way I'm supposed to do them or that the way the evidence says sure. is the best yeah. practices. And, uh, yeah, the modeling. So modeling that for them is like the most important thing you can do. And then with little kids, you know, just use developmentally appropriate language, whether that's, you know, like, sweetie, you know what? I think I have been thinking, I have been underestimating you, or if that word is too big for them, say, you know what? I've been doing this thing for you and I think you can do it yourself. What do you think? And let them have that opportunity of, I'm sorry, I underestimated you. I thought you were less competent than you actually are. Why don't you show me what you can do? And what's really amazing is, is that kids will really show you. I mean, it's really, there can also be, you know, a bit of a bumpy, you know, start to those things. Like so if you've been doing everything for a kid, then, yeah. you know, pulling the rug out for that from them without explaining why you're doing it is, is it, that's going to be a disaster. But when you share with them why you're changing your expectations and the consequences in your home, um, that's treating someone with respect. That's, you know, treating them as a rational, reasonable person who can, you know, take evidence and reason with it. And that's the, that's yeah. the very best we can Modeling do for our kids. Especially when we're making mistakes. Yep. Letting them yeah. do that real time. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I know you talked in the book about chores and the importance of chores, which I think resonates with my audience a lot because we're chore people. We have mm -hmm. a lot of chores and outside chores. Can you speak to that yep. a little bit about why those are so crucial? And then just some strategies if parents are struggling to get their kids to do the chores, which we now know would be related to probably intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk to that a little bit. Yeah. I think so the, the way What's really interesting is I think that we have disconnected. Um, okay. First of all, I don't use the word chores. I use the word household responsibilities or family responsibilities, because what we want to convey to kids is that we're not asking them to do this stuff just for the heck of it. We're asking them to do stuff because it helps keep the family moving forward. It helps keep the family running. And there's even research around this showing that, especially during times of challenges, whether it's psychological challenges, find, like there, there's a specific study that was tied to the, the Great Depression, that when kids have the ability to help support the family in some way, even if that's just putting their dishes away or cleaning their stuff up, then they're less likely to suffer um, negative emotional uh, psychological mm -hmm. consequences from whatever the hardship is, because they feel a sense of, no, we're all in this together kind of thing, right? So for kids, it, it can be easiest to find the chores, household duties, whatever you want to call them, that are close, most closely related to things that will affect them, like, especially for little kids. So for example, um, you know, when my, <laughs> I make a joke in gift of failure that, um, there are two things that worked really well with my kids. So I like the house freezing cold and we used a wood stove, um, where we lived in our other house and, uh, I'm perfectly fine with not turning it on. I'm fine with letting things get really, really cold. They hated it. So if they want the house to be warm, the wood, their job was to keep the mudroom uh, wood area full of wood. If it got empty, I let the fire go out. Um, so there were things like that. Or we had a small orchard and their favorite place to play was in the orchard because it was where the treehouse was and it was where they had this swing. But 
if the drops, the apple drops stay on the ground, the wasps will come and, and, um, and sting them. And that would happen on a fairly regular basis. And so the answer to that is, you know, you got to clean up there. They were in charge of cleaning up the apples on the ground. And um, it became even more fun when, when those apples on the ground had to go into tubs sure. went to feeding some pigs down the road. So, and then they would, we would buy meat from those people. And then, so there's this whole circularity to that. Um, so helping kids understand that, you know, these aren't just arbitrary things that we're making them do because we're mean. These are things that help keep our family running in a very real way. It's nice to have one household duty that sort of points that out. Um, what I didn't include in um, Gift of Failure as much as, as much as I now in retrospect wish I had is there's a wonderful book called How to Be a how to be a happier parent, um, written by KJ Delantonia, who hosts, um, the podcast that I, that I put out called, um, oh. hashtag am writing. It's about writing and stuff. She was my editor at the New York times. And she put out this book, how to be a happier parent. And she asked like a thousand parents, what are your least favorite things about parenting? And what do you think you're really rocking? What are you really doing well with your parenting? And the least favorite parts were things you might expect, like, chores, dinner time, mornings, um, you know, uh, sports that, you know, extracurriculars, those kinds of homework, that kind of thing. And what she found after talking to Charles Duhigg and a couple of other people who do work around this area is that you really need for kids to have um, a season for chores for household duties to become habit. So the constantly revolving chore chart, like, okay, today it's your job to do X or Y, and then Thursday it'll be something different, doesn't actually work that well. That if we really want kids to develop um, habits, like doing things without being asked, that takes a season. So try to stick with um, a seasonal model for chores. And, you know, growing as someone who grew up, um, my, you know, I was horse crazy as a kid. I wanted horses desperately. And so when we finally got one and I shared barn space with the person who lived across the street from me, I got, you better believe I got up at five o'clock in the morning. We alternated weeks on who was in charge of morning feeds and water and the stalls and stuff. And it sucked. I hated it, but it was, but if I didn't do that, then I would lose that thing that was really, really important to me. Um, so, you know, as the more we can tell, it's like the natural consequences stuff, the more clear we can make it for kids that doing this thing is helping the family and helping them and helping our relationships, all of that sort of stuff tied together. Yeah. That's a really I, I totally agree. Picture. Um, and I still, there's still parts. I think there's parts of what my kids do that we have really good natural consequences. And there's parts I'm like, I need to get a little bit better at getting creative and letting Maybe rearranging things. And and you can squeeze you can squeeze some autonomy into that too. So say, okay, well, you hate working in the garden, but is there anything we're not growing that you would really like to try? Or this row is yours. How about you? You're in charge of this row and we're gonna eat whatever comes from your row, you know, that kind of stuff. Where it's it's clear that you're giving them some control. So if you really, really want them to do, and this comes down again to helping them feel like you think they're competent. We need to care a little less about like how the dishwasher is loaded. Um, and, you know, if stuff does come out of the dishwasher with like, you know, eggs, hardened eggs on there, that's a learning moment too. It's like, look, you didn't, you know, clean this off before you put it on. So now you're going to have to scrape it off. Like, I don't sure. just take care of that for you. This is what happens when you don't do that. And that's a natural consequence of this thing. So helping kids, you know, see the whole picture of, 
of why they're doing these household duties and for whom and what the ramifications are if they don't do them correctly, that's all part of the learning yeah. process too. So valuable. And it's interesting you brought up the horses. I'm a horse girl too. Um, and I recently had a revelation. I have a horse who's younger and I've been having some trouble with him and I haven't been able to figure out why. And um, I rode in a clinic and one of the revelations I had was I never let him have natural consequences to some of the things he was doing. I never let him have, I was like, directing him and disciplining him and keeping him within tight boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I needed to let him make some choices for himself to see what would happen. And he was, I mean, he's obedient, but he wasn't fully mentally happy because of that. And I, I, when I realized I'm like, Oh, yeah. jealous the same yeah. like, with the kids, you can't hold them and you can't like hover. You have to let them push and see where, what works yeah. and what doesn't and what happens and what, what doesn't happen. So it's such a fascinating concept. I, I have to say there was, there was, and not to get into a big, you know, a big thing over like various horsemanship models, but, you know, natural yeah. horsemanship, there's a lot yeah. of crossover between, you know, and not just with kids, but, you know, with how I relate to my yeah. spouse and how I relate to my parents. There's a whole bunch of, you know, what you can control and what you can't control and having, it, 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 there there's is. a lot to be Yeah, that's why there. I like it because so, it's yeah. not just horses, it's life and all the pieces and makes you think. Right. It's about, and, and when it comes to it, it's, you know, yeah. it's about us. It's like those, the, those dog trainers who say, I'm not really training the dog. I'm training the owner because half of the stuff that we're messing up or that we're getting so upset about has a lot to do with us and not so much to do with the other creature. 100%. In the, in the but picture. it's way more fun to blame the horse <laughs> than to look at ourselves. Or of blame course. The kid than of to course. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're running up on time and I want to be respectful because I know you have a lot of things to do. I had one other question though. Um, maybe there's a correlation here, maybe not, but I know a lot of people are talking right now about the, the differences in generations. And one thing I hear repeated over and over is how maybe the youngest generation, the most recent generation kind of doesn't, doesn't want to launch. They're not getting out in the world. They're kind of just maybe stunted or just not following the typical adult trajectory. And I think there's probably a lot of factors at play there. But do you think that maybe mm -hmm. this cultural overprotectiveness is playing a role in any way? You know, I think there's a lot of things at play. And, and the very first place we have to start is with this sort of um, mythic nostalgia, tinted glasses, rose colored glasses sort of thing. We tend to think about like, oh, the yeah. 50s were so great or Little House on the Prairie or, you know, what, you know, in the be beginning of The Gift of Failure, I talk about Little House on the Prairie being, you know, a thing I was really, you know, I used to try to do things the way Laura would do them. And then when I get it became a parent, I tried to do things the way Ma would do them. There is, there is a lot of sort of like selective yes. memory going on when it comes to that sort of thinking, that romanticism. But I think that there, there's so many factors involved in sort of that, how we got here. And I don't think it's true that we can put it on you know, those terrible millennials who don't know mm -hmm. how to write an email. I think there's a lot of, you know, we tend to impose our expectations based on the technology we were raised with and based on the way we approach situations in, in order to judge how, uh, you know, how a, another generation is doing. But I think if you looked at, some, if you look at some of the activism that's happening, especially through social media, that some really young kids are, are working so hard for change. And I really, 
I sus- I'm highly suspicious of the motivations of people who want to just dump on the kids. And again, it comes back to the, and it, no, even if there is a higher level of learned mm-hmm. helplessness, and let's just for giggles say there is, they yeah. learned that somewhere. And so there has to be some level of ownership of you know, I have to completely own the fact that my child was nine and didn't know how to tie his shoes because I just, I I did that to him. I took that over and I made him feel helpless and I, I perpetuated that. So I think there's a lot of things to think about. And then on top of that, one of my good friends is Ron Lieber, who writes the Your Money column in the New York Times, and he has two fantastic books. One is called The Opposite of Spoiled, about raising kids around money. Um, whenever anyone talks to me, asks me about allowances, I'm like, here's my answer, but go read The Opposite of Spoiled because it's such an incredible book. But his second book, which sounds like it's just about college, but it's not, is called um, The Price You Pay for College. And but it has a those two books have a lot to do with sort of the things we do and the way we do them tell instruct our kids how to be and we're in a position now from economically speaking where you know we can't automatically expect that our kids are going to do better than that, than us uh, financially and that was the rule for many generations so that is frightening to us that's incredibly frightening to our children and the you know the employment landscape looks different um, right now, the future looks, there are a lot of things for kids right now to be really scared about. And um, I think that there's a lot of activism going on and some paralysis going on, because if all of those problems are so big, whether it's guns or climate or whatever, there one reaction, one natural reaction is to say, you know, I'm one person, I can't do that all myself. So I'm hoping that you know, the tools that these kids have that we may not have had at our um, disposal are going to help them feel like they have some power to change things. And and I think I have a lot of hope, but, you know, I've, my entire adult life has been dedicated to, you know, teaching kids. So um, yeah, I, I'm, an, I'm optimistic. Definitely. And I think concerned. that in some research I was doing about the internal locus of control, that is a, pl- a player in, in, in believing you can do yeah. something, even though you are just one yeah. person, you do have more of a say in what happens. So right. I love how they're all connected. Can I, can I recommend a couple of yes. books in helping kids? So there are two books by Catherine Newman. She writes a column for Real Simple, and I just love her books. She said she was looking for like one of those DK books that has like, you know, pictures of the thing and how you do things and then really simple explanations on them about how to do stuff you need to do in order to be a competent human being, like clean a toilet, write a letter, load the dishwasher, say, I'm sorry, those kinds of things. And she couldn't find it. So she wrote that book herself and it's called how to be a person. And then there's a sequel that's come out, (laughs) um, called, and I'm looking over at my book right now. What can I say, which is about talking to other people and communicating your needs to other people. So I especially love how to be a person. It's really just aimed at like younger kids, like six to 12. Um, although I have put it in the hands of my older kids when they're like, oh, I clean, finished cleaning the bathroom. Look, isn't it great? Yeah. And then I'm like, I open it to how to clean a toilet and hand it over. Yeah. And then Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote a really wonderful book called um, How to Raise an Adult. She wrote yeah. a sequel to that book called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And that book comes with from a place of such love and 
admiration for young people and belief that they really have so much to offer the world. And here's how to, how to enact all of the, how, here's how to go out in the world, be your most genuine self, really make change in the world and succeed in the world on your terms. And it's, it's a really beautiful book. So Catherine Newman, how to be a person okay. and um, Julie Lithcott Hames, your turn, how to be an adult. Those two books, I think um, if you want a gift for a younger kid or an older kid or parents of a younger kid, I hand um, how to be a person out all the time at, when I'm out speaking. And it's so great because people just open it and they're like, oh, this is invaluable. I don't have to like argue with my kid about how to load the dishwasher. I can just give them this yep. book and show them how to do it. Yeah, it's great. I love that. I love book recommendations. We'll definitely stick those in the show notes. Um, anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up that we missed maybe? You know, I think a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, I can't emphasize enough, um, has really shocked me in terms of how much it is related to preventing substance use in kids, because the things that work to prevent substance use in kids are teaching kids to self-advocate, teaching kids, helping kids feel like they have the worth, that they deserve to take up space in this world, they deserve to be loved, they deserve to be listened to, and they deserve to be supported. And those elements that came out of gift of failure, you know, as I was writing the addiction inoculation, I was like, okay, well, this is great because so much of what helps kids learn and become their best selves also protects them against, you know, having to go out and find ways to alter their consciousness so they yeah. can feel better about their world, their trauma, their whatever that thing is that, that they're, they're really hurting from. Yes. I don't, I, I don't have the addiction inoculation yet, but I'm going to go out and get it um, now that we've talked. Cause I think that's, it's, that's so important, especially right now as we're seeing rises in that. So um, it's, it's on audio too. And I got oh, to good. read it. So if you're doing oh, chores, good. which is yes. when I listen to audiobooks, same, same. you can listen to it on audio. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. I love to weed and listen to books. It's like my favorite thing in the whole world. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> so, in fact, yeah. I have come to, I've come to understand that um, weeding for me is one of the most gardening in general, but especially weeding um, is a really important part of my writing process. Yeah. Um, totally. My husband jokes about this all the time that I'll come in from weeding or cross country skiing or whatever. And I'm, I'm like, don't talk to me. I have to write a whole yes. bunch of stuff down because I yes. figured out what to do with those chapters. Yep. But there's something about you and this one, this one weeding process I have to do here a lot because I'm battling this one weed. Um, I have to really sort of tease the roots out from other things and from the earth. And there's something so meditative about Absolutely. that, that it really helps me untangle what's in my head too. I am right with you. Yep. I think I wrote most of the best pieces of my most recent manuscript out in the garden mentally. And then, yeah, it was like running in. Don't talk to me. No one talk to me. Yep. I have to get this stuff. It's going to leave. It's going to leave my brain. So, so good. Well, and I have very messy notebooks that I've taken yep. out in the woods with me while I'm, <laughs> you know, cutting down trees or yeah. in the garden and there's dirt all over them. But uh, yeah, I have to have notebooks around. Yeah. Like nature is the best incubation for that creativity. Absolutely. So, yes. All right. So where can folks find you online if they want to follow along with all that you're doing? Because I know you're writing and publishing all over the place. Yep. So jessicalahey.com is where everything is. There's excerpts from my journalism. There's my speaking schedule. I don't tend to go out much in the summer until the end of the summer, really. Um, but I'll be all over the place this uh, this year, this academic year, both virtually and in person and, um, information about the books and all that stuff is there. And then my podcast is called hashtag am writing. And I host that with KJ Delantonia and Serena Bowen, two other best-selling authors. And we essentially just talk about 
the geeky details of being a writer, the the nuts yeah. and bolts stuff. I'm going to go and check that out. It's a really I, fun, fun podcast. I like the geeky writing stuff. So fantastic. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah. I'm a big geek and that's yeah. my favorite stuff. So. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, this opened up my mind to more ideas and I think I'm going to read, I need to read Gift of Failure again and I'm excited to read The Addiction Inoculation as well. So thank you so much. This was I'm fantastic. so pleased. Yeah. I'm so pleased. Thank you so, so much for having me.